foreigners in our own land. My father looked tired and sad. His answer startled me. I've given you stories to replace a community. They are your community. But surely stories can't replace experience, I said. What you may take for mere snippets of myth and legend encapsulate what you need to know to guide you on your way anywhere among Afghans, said my father. Well, as soon as I'm eighteen, I'm going to go and see for myself, I retorted. April 2001 At thirty-six years old I have never seen Afghanistan at peace. I am choking under the burqa, the pale blue veil, which begins in a cap upon my head. It covers my face, my body, my arms and my legs, and is long enough to trip me up in my muddy plastic shoes. The crocheted grill obscures my vision. It is like looking out through prison bars. I have not had enough air for four hours now, and we have eight more to go before we reach Kabul. I want to rip off the burqa, but I cannot. It's all that protects me from the Taliban. Even lifting the front flap is a crime, punishable by beating. I am a journalist filming a documentary for Channel 4 television called Beneath the Veil about the Taliban's Afghanistan. Now I have left my crew behind to travel in disguise with the Revolutionary Association of the Women of Afghanistan. We have just crossed the border illegally into Taliban-controlled Afghanistan. If I am caught, I may be imprisoned and accused of espionage. If the Taliban discover my family history and decide I am an Afghan, I share the same risks as the Afghan women who are helping me. Torture, a bullet in the head, or simply disappearing in Pulicharki, Kabul's notorious political prison. The women are willing to take this risk because they belong to an organization that opposes the Taliban. Their activities, secret schools and clinics for women, are already politically subversive enough to get them killed. Our family traces its descent through Fatima, the daughter of the Prophet Muhammad, the man who during his lifetime founded one of the world's great monotheistic religions who united the feuding tribes of Arabia and who could have accumulated wealth beyond compare, died in poverty. On his deathbed he left this bequest, I have nothing to leave you, except my family. Since then his descendants have been revered throughout the Muslim world, they are entitled to use the honorific Sayyid. Islam, as I absorbed it, was a tolerant philosophy, which encouraged one to adopt a certain attitude to life. The Quran we studied taught, there is no compulsion in religion. The prophet we followed said, the holy warrior is he who struggles with himself. Many of the sayings of the Prophet that I was raised on are from a compilation by the Afghan authority, Baghawi of Herat. One hour's teaching is better than a whole night of prayer. Trust in God, but tie up your camel first. The ink of the learned is holier than the blood of the martyr. You ask me to curse unbelievers, but I was not sent to curse. I order you to help any oppressed person whether they are Muslim or not. Women are the twin halves of men. These were the values I grew up with. This was the Islam I bought into. Now I have entered a world where I am forbidden to show my face, to paint my nails or to fly a kite. Nothing is too trivial for the scholars of Islamic law to prohibit. Even paper bags are banned, just in case the paper they are composed of should chance to have written upon it the holy name of Allah, which might, consequently, run the risk of defilement. Allah really cares about getting the details right. 
there is a serious debate raging as to whether the acceptable Islamic way to punish homosexuality is by tipping a wall over the offender or by throwing him off the highest minaret. We are heading for a secret school for girls. The way is muddy and we are afraid. We arrive at an ordinary once middle-class home. The teacher used to teach in a high school. When the Taliban came to power, they dismissed her because she was a woman. Her pupils arrive in twos and threes. That way they won't draw attention to themselves. Even the youngest girls wear the burqa. In the Taliban's Kabul concealment is a blessing. They enter silently and let their veils slip to the floor. After a spell in this city, it is a shock to see so many uncovered female faces. They look like flowers in a row, upturned to the light. The teacher wants to talk. She wants the world to know what is going on here. Do I know that 70% of teachers in Kabul used to be women? So not only are girls denied education, boys are deprived of it too. If the Taliban find this class, everyone in the room, children included, will be beaten and sent to jail. Inside me I can feel the fire of anger getting stronger. The Taliban aren't just oppressive. They have corrupted all the qualities I grew up believing to be quintessentially Afghan. Generosity of spirit, courage, boundless self-confidence, and above all, a sense of humor. In coming to Kabul, I am following in the footsteps of my Scottish grandmother, Bobo. When she was just sixteen, she fell desperately in love with the romance of the East. At an Edinburgh University reception, she met a young medical student. He was the Sirdar Iqbal Ali Shah, the son of an Afghan chieftain. When she offered this impossibly glamorous figure a plate of cream cakes, he shot back a haughty look and declared, We men of the hills have no time for sugar buns. Bobo was smitten on the spot. A Highlander herself, she talked to him of her own mountains and glens in Scotland. The pair eloped before she was seventeen. Bobo's father never spoke to her again. The Sirdar's father sent a telegram, inquiring whether she was prepared to become a Muslim, and whether she would be able to defend a fortress if required. On hearing that the answer to both questions was yes, the old man gave his blessing to the match. I have a book of her memoirs, and more than half a century later, the Kabul she describes is as fresh and enchanting as first love. In Pogman, up on the heights, in summer the gardens were a mass of flowers, making a little paradise of each house. There were no encircling walls, and passers-by had the benefit of a flower show in every garden. Kabul itself was a boom town, continually expanding, with smart new villas being built all the time. In spring, with startling suddenness, every garden sprang to life, and as if by magic roses of all kinds and colours dripped over the walls. The workmen were never too busy to pluck the blooms as they passed, and often put them behind their ears. Tulips, their petals as thin as tissue paper, and a deliciously scented mauve flower were sold in the bazaars at about three afghanis, sixpence for a large bunch. Before the Second World War, Afghanistan was in a flurry of modernization. Both America and the Soviet Union had come a-wooing, and both sides were generously dispensing financial and technological support. The newspapers chattered excitedly of five-year plans, industrialization, exports of caracal lamb and apricots, and of women's emancipation. But Bobo had no time for such vulgar hustle and bustle. 
a cream rambling rose made a fairyland of her garden. White and colored irises were everywhere, and surely Carble might have been called the home of roses. Hollyhocks, nasturtiums, sweet peas, and most of the flowers we knew well in Europe grew well and plentifully. Carble's moderate climate suited her, and was not too different from her native Edinburgh. At a Scottish friend's request, she sent back some seeds of typical Carble flowers. Her friend was intensely betrayed when the result was a riot of nasturtiums and some impossibly English-looking hollyhocks. During the Second World War, Afghanistan remained strictly neutral as the rest of the world went up in flames. My grandparents were visiting Bobo's friends in Scotland when hostilities broke out. There was a ban on civilian travel. The family decided to sit tight and hope that it would all blow over. My grandfather chafed at the restrictions of wartime Britain. There were strict regulations to ensure that the civilian population was prepared for the onslaught from the air. Everyone, without exception, was ordered to keep a stirrup pump in their house to put out the fires from incendiary bombs. A warden demanded to see my grandfather's stirrup pump. The Sirdar had not equipped himself with this item. If you don't have a stirrup pump, said the official, what are you going to do if your house catches fire? My grandfather looked at the warden and said in his precise English, Sir, I will have you know that Allah is my stirrup pump. Sometime during the war, news came from Afghanistan that the Sirdar's father, my great-grandfather, had died. It was essential that my grandfather, as his father's heir, return to claim our estate in Pogman. But now the Sirdar found himself well and truly trapped. Try as he might, he could not cut through the...